right. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, we're going to be in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, if you don't know where that is, it's right after 1 Samuel and right before 1 Kings, and it's before, you know, Psalms and Proverbs and all that good stuff in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel, if you're maybe visiting with us or, or new with us, uh, Kevin, uh, our college pastor, is uh, leading a team in London, and uh, so as you're praying this week, we have a mission team in London this week uh, with your peers. We also have a team in Honduras uh, this week doing some work, and then on Tuesday, uh, the youth leave for a summer retreat, and several of your peers and some of you in this room uh, will be there uh, leading worship, leading small groups, and the like. So three things this week. Uh, of utmost importance in our church that you can be praying for. Um, and if you uh, haven't been here this summer, uh, Kevin, our college pastor, uh, and I are uh, tag-teaming, and we're boogieing through First and Second Samuel. So it's a, a lot of ground to cover in, in just the summer. I gave an analogy of driving down the interstate versus walking through downtown, right? If you're walking through downtown, you see every brick, every block. You can look in the window of the shops. You can kind of take it all in a little at a time. Uh, that's kind of what Pastor Brian is doing right now, going through the Gospel of John. Uh, we're doing more like driving down an interstate, right? You see uh, an exit, and you see a glimpse of an area uh, based on that exit, but man, you're just boogieing along, okay? And so we're covering nine chapters today, uh, so it's a lot, but we're going to do uh, an overview of kind of what all is going on here. If you haven't been here with us uh, going through, or maybe you don't really know the story of the Samuels, um, it is... Israel having their first king in Saul, and then today we see that transition going from King Saul to King David, maybe one of the most notable, maybe one of the most popular uh, kings in all of Israel's history, or just in the history of Christianity as well. And, uh, and so last week what we saw was that David was seeking refuge in Philistia, and he and his men uh, were up there acting like they were there on behalf of uh, of Philistia to be spies for Israel, but they really weren't. And uh, Saul was continuing to pursue David, to kill David. Last week we saw that Saul and his son Jonathan were both killed in battle. Uh, word got back to David, and that's where we pick up today. Uh, today we're kind of looking at chapters 2 through chapters 10, and, and I've kind of entitled this, The Dawning of a New Day. Uh, it's the dawning of a new day, going from Saul being the king to David being the king. Uh, and not only is it a transition of leadership, it's also just a transition of behavior, a transition of mindset, uh, a transition of how Israel is going to function. Uh, there's a lot that takes place. It's a dawning of a new day uh, in Israel's history. And, and really, as you read through the chronicles of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, and then if you're ever curious, so you have First and Second Samuel, then you have First and Second Kings, and then you have First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. First Chronicles is kind of a rehash of First and Second Samuel. Second Chronicles is a rehash of First and Second Kings. So if you're ever curious, like how all of those work together, you'll see a lot of the same things from First and Second Samuel and First Chronicles, and and similarly First and Second Kings and Second Chronicles. So if you never knew that, now you know, and you're welcome. So now, but the thing is, is that when you read through these these Chronicles of Samuel and you look at the start of the nation of Israel. 
It's easy for us, and it's right for us to do this, to kind of compare King Saul and King David, uh, looking at the comparison of how these two operate. Uh, and in some ways, they had similarities, but really, in a lot of ways, they were kind of almost like polar opposites. Uh, a few notable things as we look at this transition from Saul to David um, is that they both started off well. Like, if you go back and read in 1 Samuel, when, uh, when Samuel went to anoint Saul as the king, you know, Saul himself, at his own confession, he was like, I don't know why you're anointing me. Now, this is my paraphrase. He's like, I don't know why you're anointing me. Like, I'm kind of like the lowest of my clan, and my clan's the lowest in Israel, okay? So I'm really not like the prominent person uh, that you should be anointing. So he actually started off with some humility, but with some prominence, with some success, Saul had a real issue because anger, ego, jealousy, um, you know, a lot of things began to enter into his heart pretty quickly, and he ended up becoming uh, a really, really bad king and a really, really bad man who, who led the nation in a really, really poor way. So, but David also started out well, but he was able to guard his heart a lot better than what Saul did. You know, David uh, was anointed as king, we'll talk about this a little bit later, uh, early on, but he patiently waited on the Lord, and he patiently waited on the Lord's timing in his life. Both of them made some serious mistakes, <laughs> uh, both King Saul and David. They, they both made some serious mistakes uh, in their lives that are noted in the Bible. A little side note, that's one of the things I love about the Bible is that the Bible, uh, man, it shows us everything about people and everything about humanity, right? It, it shows the awards and it shows the warts uh, at the same time. And so both of them made some serious mistakes, but with Saul, what we saw was remorse and with David, what we see is repentance. Uh, and there's, there's a big difference uh, in the two. Uh, last week we looked at, uh, or a couple weeks ago, we looked at David with his repentance, with the way he treated King Saul when he had opportunity to kill him, um, and also with the way he treated Nabal uh, when, when Nabal mistreated David, and David wanted to respond. His wife interceded Abigail, uh, and David responded with repentance. And so um, the thing that we see, too, between Saul and David is that Saul was the king uh, that the people wanted, David was the king that the people needed, right? And, and we're going to see that a little bit later on uh, in this text today, right? They, they, they wanted Saul, and God even tried to warn them, like, trust me, Saul really isn't the one that you want. And they were like, yes, he is. And God's like, okay, <laughs> you know, and he was the one they wanted. But David ultimately is the king that they, that they needed. And then, and then lastly, a, a notable thing is just David's patience, with the Lord's plans and timings. When, when you read through 1 Samuel, David was anointed to be the next king when he was a teenager. Uh, he was so much off the radar that when Samuel went to Jesse's house, that's David's dad, and he said, hey, I'm here to anoint the next king of Israel, Jesse starts filing in all of his sons, uh, and he leaves out David. He didn't even consider David because David wasn't even like old enough to kind of be on the radar to be considered. And when they went to fight the Philistines with the, with the battle of Goliath, David wasn't there because he wasn't even old enough to like fight in the army. So, so David was anointed to be the next king at a, at a very young age, at a very apparently a very dismissive age, but he didn't take the throne, as we find out in 2 Samuel, he didn't take the throne until he was 30 years old. Right? That's, a, that's a long time to wait and to be patient on the Lord's timing. But he ended up reigning for 40 years and, and doing it in a, in a really good way. And so sometimes in life, God may call us to things, and, and we have a hard time being patient, right? Just because God reveals to you that he has a plan for your life or some things are going to come into place doesn't mean that they're going to take place immediately. 
Sometimes we have to be patient and wait on the Lord, and David was great to do that. And not only was David great to do that, David was great to do it when a king was sitting on the throne who was a terrible man and a very ungodly ruler and leader. But David still emphatically was waiting on God's timing and waiting on the Lord. So today we look at this transition and this establishment of David's reign. I'm calling it the dawn of a new day. And I've kind of broken it into three chunks, okay? Now the first chunk is going to be the longest. So don't look at your watch and get nervous, right? If I'm taking this long uh, on point one and then don't multiply it times three and be like, sweet, well at least we'll all go eat lunch together from the fellowship hall. No, no, we're not going to do that. But, but the first thing that we see starting in chapter two and going through chapter five uh, is what I'm calling a tragic transition, a tragic transition. Now, the transition wasn't tragic, going from Saul to David. The way the transition took place was very tragic, it, it very, very tragic. If I could pick out two verses that kind of sum up how this transition takes place, look in chapter 2, verse 7. This is David talking to the people there in Hebron where he is. He says, Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul your master is dead, and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. And then chapter 3, verse 1, the war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. So at this point in time in the, in the series and in the storyline, David is, is still an outcast. He's still living in, in Hebron. He's still hiding out uh, there and He's, he's kind of public enemy number one. So what, what the Bible tells us is we basically have two teams here, okay? We got two camps. Uh, we have team, team Saul and Team David, okay? So Saul has one son who's left uh, named Ishbosheth, okay? So Ishbosheth is Saul's uh, sole surviving heir. And then he has a commander of his army, Abner, okay? So that's Team Saul, Ishbosheth, and then the military leader in Abner. Then we got Team David. You got David. Now, at this point, he's still an outlaw, okay? He's still public enemy number one, according to Saul's household. And then he has a commander of his army in Joab, okay? So Ishbosheth and Abner over here with Team Saul, David and Joab with Team David, okay? Now, as it says in here, they did not get along very well. And, and the way all of it started, it was kind of like this powder keg, right? Because Saul and, and Jonathan are now dead. And so back then, in case you don't know about history, and, and a little bit now, back then there's two ways that somebody becomes king and the ruler of a nation. You inherit the throne or you take the throne by force, okay? Those are, those are your two options. Think about like it, if you keep up with like England, right? So Queen Elizabeth uh, just dies, and so now her son, right, takes over as the king, one day he'll die, probably sooner than later. Uh, that's terrible. Anyway, so uh, one day he'll die, and the, and the throne will be passed down to one of his sons, right, and so on and so forth. So, so the thing is, is that, um, that, that you look at it and you go, okay, well, so yeah, Saul has a lineage, but what we read is like Ishbosheth isn't necessarily like the man's man, okay? All right, there's maybe a reason why he wasn't in battle with Saul and his brother Jonathan, you know? He was a little bit, um, oh, I probably shouldn't say that in Sunday school. Anyway, he wasn't necessarily the man's man, okay? He probably ate a chicken salad chick a lot. But anyway, so the thing is, is that, um, which I eat there a lot too, but, but the thing is that, right? So he, you know, he, there's a reason why he still left, right? So he's there. Now David, right, David ends up being like the greatest military leader, probably the greatest soldier like in Israel's history. So, so you can see there's like this powder keg going on it's just ready for a match to light it 
and, and watch it explode. There's all this tension. So here's this one thing that records for us in chapter 2. They're by the pool of Gibeon, okay? Now, don't think pool like neighborhood pool, probably more just like a small retention pond. But they're by the pool of, uh, pool of Gibeon, and Joab and some of his men are on this side, and, and Abner and some of his men are on this side, you know, and Abner's over here with his, you know, JBL flip playing the cray, you know, and, and, and Joab's over here with his men, and he's playing the Gettys, you know, and they're just kind of hanging out. And, and Abner, right, Team Saul, Abner says, hey, for sport, why don't we get some of our men to just fist fight in front of us? Okay, look in uh, verse 10, uh, or no, verse uh, 14. Abner said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand-to-hand, hang on to that, fight hand-to-hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab said. So Abner, Team Saul, tells Joab, Team David, hey, let's have about a dozen of our dudes just fist fight in front of us for entertainment. So he, he kind of initiates it. Joab says, okay, sweet. So they rally up the troops, and they get ready to fist fight for entertainment. You know, I'd be the dude, like, you know, the animated gif, like with a thing of popcorn sitting there like this, like eating the popcorn, like looking back and forth for the entertainment. That's kind of how I'm. But it, um, boy, it escalates quickly. It escalates real quickly. Look at verse 16. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they fell down together. Hold up now. How do we go from hand to hand to being like, yeah, you fist fight, sweet. And he stabs him in the side, okay? That escalated like real quick, okay? So, so what happens is they're supposed to just fist fight for entertainment. Instead, they all kill each other at the same time. So now 12 dudes are laying there dead. That's all they needed. Look at what happened in verse 17. The battle that day was very fierce. <laughs> so basically like this, this just lit the powder keg and these guys start fighting. And, and a battle ensued. And Joab, right, Team David, Joab had a brother, Asael. And Asael, I love this, they describe Asael as being uh, fleet-footed like a gazelle. Just in case you're wondering, of all the things that have been used to describe me through the years, this one has never made the list. I have never been fleet-footed like a gazelle, okay? And so he was fleet-footed like a gazelle, so he takes off after Abner. He's like, man, we're about to put this dude down. We're about to be done with this feud once and for all. So he's chasing after Abner. Abner looks over his shoulder, sees Asael, Joab's brother, Team David, pursuing Team Saul. And, and he looks back and he's like, hey, bro, I need you to stop pursuing me. I don't want to kill you and explain this to your brother. Just in case you're wondering, to become a general or leader or commander of an army back in the day, it wasn't political. You weren't elected. You weren't nominated. That meant you were the baddest dude on the block, okay? You got there because you were the dude that beat everybody else, okay? So Abner is no slouch when it comes to combat. So he looks back and tells Asael, like, bro, I need you to stop pursuing me. I don't want to kill you and explain it to your brother. Asael's like, nah, fam, we ain't giving up. So he, keeps, he closes the gap. Abner looks over his shoulder again and goes, Asael, seriously, I really need you to stop pursuing me. I don't want to kill you and explain it to your brother. And Asael said, that ain't happening. So when he gets close, Abner rams his spear backwards, runs him through, and kills Asael right there on the spot. And so we see it's a very tragic death. In verse 30 of chapter 2, so Joab stopped pursuing Abner and assembled the whole army. So he stops the pursuit, gathers up his brother, and then they take tally of, of this, this uh, war that's happened. This, this is the spark of it all. And, and it was a very costly squabble. What was supposed to be, you know, uh, uh, boxing uh, or MMA, like a little sport, hand-to-hand combat, turns into a battle. 
And it was a very costly squabble. Look in chapter 30. It says, Beside Asael, 19 of David's men were found missing, but David's men had killed 360 Benjamites who were with Abner. So Team Saul killed 20, Team David killed 360. What did it say in chapter 3? David started to grow stronger and stronger. Saul's camp began to grow weaker and weaker. Just in case you didn't know, just in case you were wondering, David and, and what the Bible calls his mighty men were not men to be trifled with when it came to military. These dudes were epic in battle. They did a lot of stuff that was pretty great. So when they came around, they weren't playing. It, it was, it's kind of like when dad came home from work, playtime was over. It was discipline time. You know what I'm saying? Y'all don't? I do. <laughs> and so when my dad got home, it was like, oh, it's on now. All right, so maybe that's just my dad. So anyway... So, so now this happens, and this war breaks out. And, and as war continues between these two camps, it grows stronger and stronger. So Abner, right, the, the general and the commander of, of Saul's army, he sees what's happening. He's not dumb. He's really smart. He's really good. He sees that the, the, the momentum and the power shift is drifting toward David and that Ishbosheth just isn't really, he's not the savage that his dad was. Right? He, he's not going to take a bull by the horns and, and just go for it. And, and probably in a positive way, Saul did it to his own detriment. And so Abner says, all right, he begins to build this coup around himself and begins to unify. And is like, hey, I'm just going to kind of look out for myself. Because if it goes down, Ishbosheth's not going to be the one to lead us to victory. So Ishbosheth finds out about Abner's little coup and he confronts him about it. And Abner basically intimidates him and Ishbosheth backs down. So Abner says, well, I'm just going to get ahead of the game. And so he goes to David. And he goes to David and basically decides he wants to do a peace treaty with, with King David. And he wants to get this coup that he's consolidated and get them on Team David's side. And David says, okay, I'll do your peace treaty, but I've got one condition. I need you to bring me my wife, Michael. Now, if you'll go back in 1 Samuel and you remember, when, when Goliath was there and challenging the Israelites... King Saul said, whichever soldier kills this Philistine, I will give them a plot of land, I'll give them my daughter's hand in marriage, and they will become part of the royal family. Well, that was David. So David got Saul's daughter, Michael, as his wife. David was actually Saul's son-in-law, in case you didn't know that. And so he had Michael. Well, when, when Saul got so uh, jealous of David later on and was trying to kill him in the palace, David fled, obviously, to his place, and Michael helped him escape. David became a refuge by himself. So apparently, Michael's just been staying behind this whole time. And David says, hey, if you want to really make a peace treaty, my wife is in your camp and has been the whole time. I would love to have her back. <laughs> I would love to have my wife back. So Abner goes and gets Michael and brings her and reunites her with David. And it says that David sends him away in peace, right? This peace treaty has been made. One of the things that you'll notice, a little side note, one of the things that you'll notice with David, David never wanted this transition to take place through bloodshed. David loved Israel. David loved the people of Israel. He did not want this kind of transition to take place. David was constantly trying to figure out, how can I save and secure Israel from all the surrounding people, and how can we make this transition take place in a way that honors the Lord? So he makes this peace treaty with Abner. Joab comes back from a, a, from a battle, and he finds out that David has made a treaty with Joab, right? Now, Joab's the one who murdered his brother in battle. Uh, I mean, Abner's the one who murdered Joab's brother, Asael, in battle. So Joab's like, 
He ain't cool with that. <laughs> You've probably been in a situation like that, right? Maybe you got a friend who becomes a friend with one of the people that you don't like, and you're like, nah, fam, that ain't how this works, man. We're not hanging out together. That's, that's not how this works. So he goes to David. He goes, David, bro, I don't know what you're doing, but that, he's not wanting a peace treaty. He came as a spy. He wants to see your camp. He wants to see what you're doing. He wants to overthrow us. And David's like, Joab, it's cool, man. Like he, He's trying to you know, dissolve the situation that's been happening with this powder keg of tension. So Joab, in his rage and in his revenge, he sends messengers to Abner and says, hey, come back. We need to discuss some of the terms of the agreement of this peace treaty. So Abner comes back, and the Bible says that when he comes back, Joab takes him aside to, quote-unquote, talk to him privately, and he kills him in revenge for his brother's death. Well, this gets back to David. Of course, it gets back to David. David hears of this, and here's how David responds in two ways. Number one, he rebukes Joab. He rebukes him, and is like, that wasn't right. I did not commission that. I did not command that. That was wrong. His blood will be on your head and on your family's head and basically tells Joab, like, your family will be cursed because of this. And Joab's like, I don't care. I'll take the curse. I don't care. And so, so then David takes Abner's body and goes back and gives him a royal burial. And he mourns publicly. That's not what he wanted for Saul's household. That's not what he wanted. So he takes Abner back gives him a proper barrel, gives him a royal barrel, and publicly mourns his loss. And look what happens in chapter 3, verse 36. It says, All the people took note and were pleased. Indeed, everything the, the king did pleased them. See, here's what's happening. David's responding in a way that honored the Lord. He's responding in the way that he really wanted to, and the people take notice. They, they know who David is. They've heard the rumors. They think he's a traitor. He's public enemy number one. But now what do they see? They see him showing compassion to their leader who was just killed. They see him mourning over him. They see him, you know, doing right by them. And they take notice. And what's happening here is David's actions, doing what the Lord, what honors the Lord, is beginning to draw the people's heart unto him to where it's helping him start to unify the nation. Right? So Team Saul, Abner's gone. Ishbosheth is left. Team David, you have David, and Joab is still there, but now Joab's got some major issues going on. So look in chapter 4, verse 1. So when Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all of Israel became alarmed. Well, just in case you're wondering, if you have a leader who now is afraid, that doesn't give you a lot of hope. <laughs> So now all of Israel sees Ishbosheth, the, the, the part of Israel who, you know, they have Ishbosheth as their king. Uh, Abner had announced him as king when Saul and Jonathan died, and they go, oh, snap. Like the real backbone, you know, the brains behind the operation is gone. This guy doesn't look very confident, and here comes David. You know, we, we may have some serious issues. So there's these two guys, insert these two brothers. Um, they're kind of like thug militia, black ops, off the books kind of guys, if you know what I'm talking about, for King Saul. These were the two dudes that King Saul would call when he didn't you know, need people to find out what really happened, right? They're the dirty, nasty people in the movie uh, that go rogue, and then you have, a, you, know, you have a problem. You know, Jason Bourne would have probably been jealous of these two guys. And so, so you have Rahab and Bayana. So Rahab and Bayana are these thug militia brothers who, who kind of did the wet work, so to speak, for King Saul for his black ops stuff. And, and they see an opportunity. Abner's gone. Ishbosheth, maybe not the leader that we need. 
We need to get in good with, with Team David. Team David's taking over. We need to switch camps. We need to go to Academy Sports. We need to buy the new gear so we can wear the new hat and the new jersey, right? That's kind of where they are. And so what do they do? Well, they go in and they murder Ishbosheth. Look in uh, chapter 4, verse 5. Now, Rechab and Bayana, the sons of Rimon the Berothite, set out for the, hi- for the house of Ishbosheth, and they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. They attack a brother while he's sleeping, man. I mean, c- come on, right? That's, yeah, I guess that's the way to do it. All right, so verse 6, they went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat. Apparently, uh, he took a nap in the pantry, I don't know. And, uh, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Bayana slipped away. So they go into Ishbosheth's house in the afternoon when my man's taking a nap, and they slaughter him, and they cut off his head. And they take his head to David. Okay, look in verse 8. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to kill you. This day the Lord has avenged my Lord and the king against Saul and his offspring. Basically, they roll up with Ishbosheth's head to David, and they go, Hey, bro, check it out. We just got you, Israel. You're welcome. Right? Now, who was in here last week when we read at the end of uh, 1 Samuel and the start of 2 Samuel? when the guy came to David and claimed to have murdered Saul and Jonathan in battle? Did it go the way he thought it would? Yeah. Uh, No. (laughs) So in their mind, they're like, yeah, bro, you're welcome. We're on your team now. Here's the head of your enemy. Well, you know what? David didn't consider him his enemy. And so this did not turn out the way that they thought it would. Look in verse 9. David answered Rechab and his brother Bayana, as surely as the Lord lives who has delivered me out of every trouble. Notice what David's doing. David's like, bro, just in case you're wondering, you're not my savior. God is. You're not the one who saved me from Ishbosheth. God is. You're not the one who's saving Israel. God is. He knows where his real salvation came from. When someone told me, I love this, he rehashed it. When someone told me Saul is dead and he thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. Well, if you're these two brothers, you're like, I kind of saw this going a little bit different. This ain't going the way we thought it would. Hang on, hold up now. Look at what he says. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and in his own bed, right? He's like, you didn't even kill him in battle. You killed him while he was sleeping. Should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? You ever have those moments, right? You play out a conversation in your mind or, or you go somewhere and like all of a sudden you, it's, it's completely opposite than the way you thought it was going to go and you kind of have that uh-oh moment, right? You go, man, I saw this going a whole lot different than it really did. Guys, I got a lot of stories about that, a lot of surgeries too. Uh, verse 12, so David gave an order to his men and they killed them. They cut off their hands and their feet, and they hung their bodies by the pool in Hebron. I guarantee you that's not how they thought that was going to go, and there they are. But watch this again. Here's what David's doing, right? David is wanting this thing to honor the Lord, and he's, he's, he's so brokenhearted that it's happening the way that it's, that it's happened. So they took the head of Ishbosheth and they buried it in Abner's tomb in Hebron, right? So what does he do? He, he takes the remains of Ishbosheth, and he buries them in the royal burial with Abner, basically showing the people like, guys, I'm not commissioning this. I'm not approving of this. This is not the way this is supposed to go down. So now King Saul's camp has lost Saul, Jonathan, Ishbosheth, and Abner. They're, all the leadership's gone. 
And so now David becomes the official king of all of Israel. Look at chapter 5, verse 3. So when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all of Israel 33 years. Warren Wiersbe writes great commentaries, uh, uh, devotional commentaries. I recommend them on Scripture. And here's what he writes about this. He said, David had trusted God in the most difficult circumstances. He inherited a divided people, but with God's help, he united them, and he built Israel into a strong and powerful kingdom. After experiencing years of turbulence and division, the nation at last had a king who was God's choice and the people's choice. Remember how we said that early on, right? Saul was the king that the people wanted. David was the king that the people needed. Now there's a king that both God and the people wanted for Israel. God takes time to prepare his leaders. I love, I love how he says that. So in the process uh, of David now unifying um, Israel as a nation, he decides we need a capital city that's going to unify us. You know, he, he's camping out on the North Ridge, kind of the north end of the country, trying to stay close to the border for when he had to escape Saul. <clears throat> and so he decides he wants to go to Jerusalem. And you may say, now why Jerusalem? Well, this is another act of David to pursue the unification of the country because Jerusalem was strategically located on the border of Benjamin, which is Saul's heritage, and Judah, which is David's heritage. So he's picking a neutral site that appeals to everybody, right? Everybody's got their heritage. Everybody's got their, their rich place. And so he decides to pick a place like that. The Jebusites are currently um, inhabiting Jerusalem. And so David goes and they, and they battle against David and David wins. And he now puts Jerusalem as the new base of operation and the new capital of Israel. And I love what Warren Wiersbe talks about how um, this isn't just a, a political move on David's part, but how it's a foreshadowing of what Jerusalem would become eventually. It's really cool. He said the Lord must have guided David in a special way when he chose Jerusalem to be his capital because Jerusalem would play a strategic role in the working out of his great plan of salvation, right? Like David's picking Jerusalem as a, as a place to save and, and, and unite the kingdom of Israel, but ultimately God would use Jerusalem as a place to save all of us and unite all of us who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior through his death, burial, and resurrection. So he's in Jerusalem. The Philistines hear about it, and they're like, hey, we don't like David. <laughs> uh, they, they decide, like, hey, if you, if you read through there, like Saul always battled against the Philistines. He always had issues with the Philistines. They don't like this transition of power from a military strategy. It's the best time to strike. A, a country is probably the weakest when it's not unified, when it's changing uh, a transfer of power. So they go and they attack, and they lose, and they lose big time. <laughs> they lose big time. And so now what we see is that we see this tragic transition. Not, not that transitioning from Saul to David was tragic. That's actually a very good thing that happened. But the way that it happened, that it was very, very tragic. So application, thinking about you and me, is simply this. Like, so many people in this narrative, uh, they wanted to take matter in their own, own hands, and, and they wanted to, quote-unquote, do their part to make it right. But... They did it in a way that didn't honor the Lord. They did it in a way that seemed right in the eyes of the world. They did it in a way that seemed right in, in, the, in the feelings of the flesh. And the whole time, David is, is totally opposed to the way all this is going down. 
And, and it kind of makes you and I think about how you and I can be involved in God-honoring conflict resolution, right? Oftentimes in life, we're going to find ourselves in the middle of conflict. And it, and it may be something that's going on with us involved, or it just may be something that's going on around us. And, and it calls for us to intervene and, and to help people understand that if they're doing something that's wrong, that they need to be doing this differently and, and do our part to interject our part to help the situation in a way that honors the Lord. Romans 12, 18, Paul writes, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Live at peace with everyone. We can do our part to help situations and help people do what's right and honors the Lord. So we have this tragic transition. The second thing that we see, the second segment in chapter six and seven is a celebratory transfer, a celebratory transfer. So, so we're going to, we're going to, cruise through the rest of this because David, right, the nation is now, if you're looking at Israel, the nation is now, now unified. Uh, the capital has been established. And David looks around and says, hey, we need the Ark of the Covenant. We need the Ark of the Covenant here in Jerusalem. Now, if you, let's, let's kind of put a pin in this and let's, let's rewind a little bit in case you're not familiar. The Ark of the Covenant was given during like Moses and, and, and Joshua's time early on in Israel's history, and it was the physical representation of the presence of God. It dwelt in the temple in the Holy of Holies. Whenever Israel would pack up camp and move, the, the Ark of the Covenant would travel in the middle, signifying God's presence in the middle of them. When they crossed the Jordan River to go battle Jericho, when the, Ark, when the priests and the Ark of the Covenant stepped into the Jordan River, that's when the Jordan River parted to where they could cross over on dry land. The Ark of the Covenant was a big deal. But the problem is, if you remember back to when Kevin and I started in 1 Samuel, the people in Israel started to see it as a good luck charm. So when they went to battle against the Philistines, they lost. And they sent word to Eli, who was the priest at the time, and they're like, hey, send the Ark of the Covenant with us, right? We need to rub that thing like a game ball or slap it like a sign over a door. We need its mojo to rub off on us so that we can go win in battle. That's not what the Ark of the Covenant was for. But Eli relented. He sends the Ark of the Covenant. The Philistines win at their shock and their surprise. So the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant. They had it for about seven months, and they sent it back <laughs> because it bounced around to lots of towns, and wherever it was, they had destruction and plague and sickness. Uh, they were like, this thing, ain't a, this thing ain't a relic we want to keep. So they decided to send it back to Jerusalem. They sent it back with some gifts on a cart with some oxen. They just let it roll up. So the one of the border towns there, all of a sudden, here comes this cart with all these gifts and these oxen and the Ark of the Covenant. They're like, well, check that out, right? So it comes in. Israel's got it back, but they kept it on a border town of Karam Jeram. Now, that, they stay there for like 20 years. So it's in Israel's possession, but David's like, it needs to be here, right? Because here's what's happened, right? David has made sure that Israel is established politically. He's made sure that they're established militarily, but here's the most important part. He wanted to make sure that Israel was established spiritually. See, they, they, had, they had lacked in spiritual leadership for a while, especially since Samuel had passed away. And he realized that in the midst of success, if we have political present, uh, representation and we have military representation, but we don't have spiritual representation, we're, we're not doing it right. We, we need God's presence and favor with us as we're building this thing, we want to build it the right way. Well, David had great intentions, but he, he didn't do it the right way. He was doing a right thing, but he didn't do it the right way. And in chapter 6, what we read is that all of Israel has a day of worship. They're going to transfer the Ark of the Covenant from, ba from Bala, which is, which is another name for Karath-Jerum, where, it, where it's been. 
They're going to transfer it from there all the way to Jerusalem. It says the whole nation began to pull out musical instruments. They're all singing. They're all dancing. It's like probably like the greatest thing that you can ever think of. I was trying to think this morning. I really couldn't think of like what this would be like for you and for me. Even this like pales in comparison, but I think about like a lot of my friends who may be a part of a church plant and, and they grow their congregation to the point that they could have like a, a location that they could call their own. And like that first Sunday there, like how awesome and, and exhilarating it is for them to have a place of worship, right, for their congregation. Even that probably pairs in comparison to like a whole country having a worship service. Well, a great thing, but they didn't do it the right way. And you talk about the, the, the weirdest, most awkward <laughs> interruption of a worship service ever. Look at verse 6. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of the Covenant because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the Ark. Well, that escalated quickly. I mean, you go from a worship service to a dude dying on the spot from touching the Ark. It seems a little drastic to me on the surface. And you're like, man, why did God's anger burn against him? Warren Wiersbe, once again, he describes this really, really well for us to understand. David's first attempt failed miserably because the Levites didn't carry the ark on their shoulders. God had given specific directions through Moses how the tabernacle was to be erected, how it was to be dismantled, and how it was to be transported. When they used a new cart drawn from oxen, they followed the pattern of the pagan Philistines. Right? That's how the Philistines sent the ark back to them. That's not how God intended for it to be used. It's not the pattern that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. The lesson here is obvious. God's work must be done in God's way if it is to have God's blessing. The fact that all the leaders of Israel agreed to use the cart did not justify and make it right. When it looked like the ark would fall from the cart, Uzzah presumptuously took hold of it to steady it, and he was killed. God had warned about this as well in the law of Moses, and every Israelite should have known of it. There's no evidence that Abinab was a Levite or that his son Uzzah or Ohio were even qualified to be near the ark, let alone touch it. So David was doing a good thing bringing the ark, but he didn't go back and read how that was supposed to be done. And so it ended up in tragedy. So they, they pause it. They cause a timeout. They store it away. Okay, They put it in the house of Obed-Edom, and they're like, hey, let's, let's pause, let's, let's regroup. They go back, it stayed there for three months. Three months later, David decides, okay, the ark does need to be here, but we need to do it the right way. Look in verse 13 of chapter 6. <clears throat> when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf, and wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And while he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. So the, tent, the ark is now in Jerusalem. They did it the right way. God honored that. So we see this celebratory transfer. They've been established politically. They've been established militarily. Now they're getting their establishment spiritually. What, what's the significance here? I'd say the significance here would be uh, understanding how important uh, worship and the Lord's presence is in our life. Um, not just seeking us to be established, to be successful with worldly things, right? Like with a job, with family, with possessions, like not seeing the Lord's blessings here on earth and, and getting to a place where we forget about who God is and what he's done for us. 
David was the most successful king in all of Israel's history. You know, he, he very much established himself politically. He 100% established himself militarily. But even in that success, he wanted to make sure that they were also established spiritually. He wanted to make sure that the Lord was still present and still prominent in everything that they were doing. And he took steps to make sure that that would happen. We have 150 Psalms in Scripture, and it's listed that David wrote 73 of those. The Psalms were songs of worship. So here you have this guy that was the greatest military leader in all of Israel's history writing songs of worship to God. It's incredible. It's incredible. He, he wrote things like this in Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your people, O Most High God. Psalm 18, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. David tried to keep the focus where it needed to be. In the midst of success, let's keep God in the middle of it. Let's not lose our focus. Let's not forget where God brought us. And then, and then it closes out in this segment in chapters 8, 9, and 10 of different groups coming and, and trying to, to battle against David and David having success. And, and I, I wish we had time to cover chapter 9. It's one of my greatest stories in, in, in all of, 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 really, of Scripture, pretty much. It, it, I'll just give it really quick. So, so David, he's, he's got everything he needs. Everything's going good. And, and he reaches out to his staff, and he says, Hey, is there anybody left? in Saul's family that I could show kindness to, chapter 9, verse 1. And, and, and they find this, this old servant in Saul's house named Ziba, and Ziba says, yes, Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth. Now, I'll go ahead and say this. I've always loved this story. I've always wanted to name a son Mephibosheth. My wife, Ginger, wasn't quite as much on board with that as me. I think she liked Micah a little bit better than Mephibosheth. You were almost Mephibosheth, bro. You better be glad Mama went with Micah. But anyway, uh, I was going to call you Phoebe. Anyway, so, so, so they, they go and they figure out that Mephibosheth is there. Now, Mephibosheth, is, he's, he's, got some, he's got some problems. See, he's, he's lame. He's crippled in his feet. What had happened, see what had happened was, uh, so when, when he was five when, when Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle. Now, back in the day, if you killed a royal family, you just went ahead and wiped out everybody. Leave no remnant uh, 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 behind to where somebody could grow up and overthrow you and, and call for a royal seed later in life. Watch Black Panther. And so the thing is, is that he, they, he, he decides, I need to find my, Mephibosheth. So he goes and calls him. Well, if you're Mephibosheth, you feel like you're about to have the Lord's judgment. And we find out why he was crippled when he was five, when, when his, his dad and granddad were killed in battle. So the nurse decides, I need to protect him so he doesn't get murdered. And she scoops him up, and she's running with him, and she falls. And in, in that fall, uh, somehow it cripples his feet. <laughs> Good job, nurse. If you're a nurse in here, I don't, you're not supposed to cripple your patients. You're supposed to help them. So he had one job. Now, anyway, so, so he's been crippled from birth, and he's been in hiding. And, uh, and so now David sends for him, and he comes. Well, if you're Mephibosheth, hey, don't, don't miss this. If you're Mephibosheth, you're being summoned to, 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 to get the wrath of the king, right? You have now been summoned to, to take on the full wrath of the king. Your life's over. But instead, look at what it says in verse 7, chapter 9. David said, 
uh, don't be afraid. I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Verse 13, And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, even though he was lame in both feet. What a, what a picture of the gospel, guys, right? That we should be called to account and face the wrath of God for our sin and, and for all that we've done wrong. And yet when we get there, what do we get? We, we experience kindness and mercy and grace because of the work that Jesus did through his death, burial, and resurrection. It's a powerful picture of the gospel that David demonstrates for us with his grace to Mephibosheth. So in closing, in closing, I apologize um, that, I di- that I tapped into my inner Kevin today and, and I'm not giving you enough time around your table groups. Um, in closing, one of the things that we see in David's life, you know, it is just his desire to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Even in the midst of all this success that he had, he didn't want to lose his focus on God. And, and I, this statement kind of hit me when I was studying through this. Our success should not be a substitute for gratitude. It should be a stimulus for it. As we find success in life and as we have the blessings of God and the favor of God in our lives, the, the real tendency is get to a place where we, we forget that we, we need the Lord and all those things came from God, especially as you get older and, and you get like knowledge and abilities and talents and success in things. It's real easy to see like, oh yeah, well, I did all those things. Well, you did them because God gave you the opportunity and he gave you the ability to do them. And it's real easy to be like King Saul and, and, and lose focus on why we really have what we have and why we really are where we are. And King David sought really hard to make sure that God stayed prominent in his life and present in his life. Now, next week, what we see is what happened when David chose to take his eye off the prize and he lost his focus. And it's probably the pinnacle of all of his downfalls. So thank you guys in closing as you leave. Just think about what are some ways that that you can honor the Lord in your life uh, to continue to give him recognition and prominence and presence in your life. And then also, too, maybe be like David. When things around you aren't going that great, maybe God could use you to be a wonderful conflict resolution to bring honor to the Lord and help the people around you show and love the kindness of God. Okay? I'm sorry I didn't give you guys table group time today. I tried. Nine chapters is a lot. (laughs) I commend you guys for listening. Or sleeping, uh, you know, whatever. You know, you didn't cut up, so whatever. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Let me pray. Um, I don't think we have to clear anything out today. I don't think there's anything going on. I think uh, no afternoon or evening activities. I'm not on staff anymore, so I'm not, I can't confirm that. I can either confirm nor deny. Zach, you're on staff. We're good. Okay. What you said? I think we're. Do you not pay attention to staff meeting? I just called you out. All right. Anyway, so uh, let me pray and let me let me be spiritual and. Uh, <laughs> And then we'll, we'll head to worship, okay? Lord, thank you so much for your word, God. Um, man, I think one of the things I love about your word so much is the honesty. Uh, it shows both the successes and the failures of mankind because, Lord, none of us are perfect. Um, we have these, these markers that we see in your son Jesus that we strive for. Uh, you know, through the presence and the person of your Holy Spirit, he empowers us to do these things. But, God, we, we fall short a lot, just like all these people that we looked at today. Uh, but we thank you that at the end of it, that when we come to you and we turn to you, that we can find grace and, and mercy and forgiveness and restoration. So thank you, God, for that. 
Lord, I pray that as we worship you now and as we go through our week this week, I pray that your presence and your person and your power would be just ever prevalent in our lives, Lord, and that we would respond in ways that honor you, that we would seek to put you first and foremost, and we just would worship you with all that we have and with all that we do. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.